You're listening to the Alan Gray Podcast. I'm Tim Acker, a portfolio manager at Alan Gray and your host for this episode. 2024 is set to be a news-heavy year with elections in South Africa, as well as in the United States and the United Kingdom. Investors have many potential scenarios to consider, from speculation around who will win these elections to expectations around what lies ahead for global inflation and interest rates. As we think about all the unknowns that are lurking in 2024, we are pleased to be joined by New York Times best-selling author Morgan Housel. Morgan has spoken at a number of Alan Gray events over the years and always leaves us with some interesting ideas to help us improve our behavior as investors. His first book, The Psychology of Money, was a massive global hit and has been translated into over 50 languages. He has just released his second book, Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes, and joins us to explain how long-term investors should approach risk and opportunity in the face of uncertainty. Morgan, you spoke at one of our events seven years ago. It's great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Happy to be here. I thought we could start with something that's top of mind for a lot of our clients, the election. So I'm sure people ask you a lot about the United States election happening this year, but maybe not so much the South African election, which is also happening. So investors here and in America, of course, get nervous around these big kind of events like elections. How do you think we should think about these things as, as investors? What's definitely true in the United States, and I imagine this is true globally too, is that investors tend to give politicians too much credit when things are going well and too much blame when things are going poorly. There's such a tribal identity aspect of politics. It's not to say that politicians cannot make good or bad decisions. Of course they can. They always have and they will in the future. But whenever you are bringing your tribal identity politics into investing, that has such a long history of people making bad decisions. And I think a lot of it is it's so easy to create a narrative in your head of what this politician who you don't like is going to do to the economy. And I'll give you a few examples. It was so common when George W. Bush became president in the year 2000 that people said, oh, he's going to cut taxes. That's good for consumer spending. Buy the airline stocks. That made a lot of sense. And then September 11th happens. And of course, air, like most of the airlines went bankrupt after that. And then it was very common in 2008 when Barack Obama became president. They said, oh, he's offered green energy. Buy the solar stocks. And then that too, a lot of the solar stocks went bankrupt after that. So the very common, like clean narratives that make sense often have very little connection to what's actually going to happen in the economy. Whenever I'm thinking about investing, I mean, once you put it into a long-term investing framework, then it's like, look, I hope to be an investor for the next 30, 40, or 50 years. So why would I make a decision about who's going to be president for the next four years in the United States? It's forcing you into short-term thinking that I think myself and I know you guys want to get away from. Look, I, I have very strong beliefs about who should be the president and political beliefs and whatnot, but they are completely separate. There is a brick wall between those and my investing decisions that I make. Yeah, I remember quite distinctly when, when Trump was elected, I guess it was 2016, it was obviously a surprise and, and people had this view that if he would be elected, it would be bad for the market. But then actually when he won, the market went up. So we often use these kind of examples, like it's hard to predict these macro things. And even when you predict them sort of the right way, it's not obvious what the what the outcome is. So yeah, I like, I like those examples yeah. you gave, yeah. I mean, one, one other like very poignant example is when Bill Clinton became president in the 1990s. His One of his big platforms was, we're, we're going to raise taxes here, people. And everyone said, oh, well, the economy's doomed, the stock market's doomed. And it ended up being the strongest, most robust, biggest bull market, strongest economy that we've ever had over the next eight years. I mean, maybe on that topic of, of forecasting, I've got a few sort of questions on that. And you've written on this topic so much. And when I've read some of your different works, the blogs and the books over time, I get this idea that your view on forecasting has changed a bit. And there's definitely a healthy dose of skepticism in there. And I, I don't know if your view has kind of changed or become more nuanced over time. Like, is it all like a waste of time? Like, should we even do forecasts? I think it really comes down to what we are forecasting. And I think the the evolution of my thinking here is very early on in my career, I was I was an analytical thinker. And it was, well, show me the spreadsheet, show me the data, and the data will lead the way. And then I, I, I had this period where I became a little bit more cynical, just based off of how bad the entire industry was at forecasting. The next recession or the next bear market or who's going to win the next election. It's just like nobody seemed to have any ability to predict what's going to happen next based off of anything other than the luck that they might get right once in a row. 
And then, so that was my period of cynicism of like, nobody can predict, don't even try it. And then I think now the evolution is, well, it depends what we're predicting. And myself as just an amateur student of history, it was this observation of when you are reading something in history that happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 500 years ago, you very often come across these things that remind you of exactly what's happening today. And it tends to be the behavior of how people respond to greed and fear and risk and uncertainty, that those things never change. And since they've never changed, you know they're going to be a part of our future going forward. So then it was like, oh, let's put all of our emphasis into that. Like, I have no idea when the next bear market's going to happen. I have no idea when the next recession's going to happen. Neither does anybody else. But regardless of when it happens, I know how people are going to respond to greed and fear and risk and uncertainty because that has never changed. So that became, you know, that's really what I focus on now. There's this great quote that I love from Voltaire where he says, history never repeats itself, but man always does. Like the details of history of when's the next war, when's the next recession, that never repeats. It's different every single time. But man always repeats himself. It's the same behaviors over and over again. So let's focus on forecasting those and understanding those. Forecast is probably the wrong word. It's just understanding how people are going to react in the future, regardless of whenever the next big event, the next big surprise happens. Right. Yeah. We, we, I guess we like to think we're so much smarter than people 500 years ago and we have planes and cars and iPhones and all these things. But actually, at a base level, like, you know, are people more rational today than they used to be? I'm not quite sure. I actually think you could take it the other way yeah. and say, because we have so much information on our iPhones and our computers that it's easier to cherry pick data. It's easier to become entrenched in your tribal identity than it was 500 years ago. So I think there are some elements to which obviously we are more informed, but having too much information can be a liability itself. Yeah, and yeah. therefore it's, it might actually be easier to make bad decisions today than it was 500 years ago. There's more information, but there's more wrong information as well, or distracting or noise, right. uh, things to take you off right. course. And sort of you mentioned like looking at history and I guess the striking thing is, you know, unpredictable things happen all the time. And you would think if we study history, we would realize the world is so unpredictable. And like you say, lots of things we just shouldn't try and forecast. But, you know, most people don't re reach that conclusion. And we, we, we sort of still try. Like, what is it? Is it just like people resist against the idea that the world is inherently hard to predict that we want like this concrete idea or, you know, what is it in people that we kind of make us that way? I think it comes down to the fact that uncertainty in your head is a very painful thing to hold on to. To admit to yourself that we don't know what's going to happen next is scary and dangerous. And therefore, people, if they cling to a forecast, even if they know that the odds of that forecast being right are very low, it, it helps reduce uncertainty. You see this in the punditry business, in the media. The person who gets the most attention in the financial media is not the person who says there's a 62% chance of recession. The person who gets the most attention is the one who says there is going to be a recession. It's going to start on this date and it's going to impact you, you in a big way. Because that person, even if it's a scary thing, they just reduce the uncertainty that you hold in your head. All of a sudden, the future is not uncertain anymore. You know what's going to happen. Even if you know what's going to happen is going to be bad, at least you know what's going to happen. And so I think the comfort of reducing uncertainty feels so good that we cling to forecasts even when we know they are wrong. There is a professor from the University of Pennsylvania named Philip Tetlock who has done the best research about the science of forecasting, the science of, of predicting. And he was asked many years ago, he said, look, the track record of prediction is terrible. Are we ever going to reach a level of of intelligence where we stop paying attention to them. And he said, no, never. It will never happen. People will always cling to forecasts, even when the forecaster has a terrible track record, because it feels so good to hold on to this idea that somebody knows what the, what's going to happen in the future. That's funny, the example you, you mentioned of the 62% chance forecast of a recession, that, that when you started talking, the first thing I thought about is, you know, often it feels like that when we're picking stocks, like you have a stock in the portfolio, but you might have 55% confidence that this stock is going to outperform the market. And that's, you know, that might be good enough to have it in the portfolio. It might still be a good investment, but it, it means there's a 45% chance that you're wrong and it's going to underperform the market, which is a really uncomfortable place to be. It would be so great if you would just could say, I'm 100% sure this thing is a sure thing. It's going to go up. But unfortunately, that's sort of not how the world works, right? There was this great example. Uh, this is 
15 years ago now, a hedge fund manager named Monis Pabrai. And he made a big investment in a company called Delta Financial. And Delta Financial went bankrupt. He lost all of his money. And he was asked by the, by the financial media, he was giving an interview about what happened. And he said, oh, well, you know, look, it's really unfortunate this, that this happened. But given the chance to do it again, I would make the same investment. And they were like, what? The investment went bankrupt. And he was like, yeah, but the odds were in my favor. It, it, was, it was a very good bet to make. Even if it went to zero, the odds were in my favor that I was going to make a lot of money. I would make that bet again. And this is why someone like Monish Pabrai is so successful, when everyone else just kind of shakes their head in, in confusion. Like the world works in probabilities, and you need to make a, a bet when the odds are in your favor. And there's a science of like how much you should bet and like capping your downside, of course. But viewing the world in probabilities instead of a stark binary black and white is very difficult for most people. Most people just want to judge your decisions based off of were you right or were you wrong? Like what happened? Did you win or did you lose? And it's a tough thing to do rather than saying like, look, the odds were in my favor. Even if it went the other way, it was still the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. On the topic of probability, you've also written on this on on how we underestimate low probability events. So, you know, things call them black swans or, you know, one in a hundred type events. It's hard for us as humans to get our heads around those kind of things. Or if they, similar to the example you mentioned, if they happen, we think like, it's almost impossible. How could it have happened? But, you know, even if we knew up front, the odds were five in a hundred or one in a hundred or, you know, whatever it might be. But that's quite a hard one, I think, to internalize. And then what do you do with that information? Even if you know that's true, you know, how do you change your behavior if, if you know that's how your mind works? I think what's really hard for people is that let's say that in any given year, there is a 1% chance of a terrible recession and a 1% chance of a terrible pandemic and a 1% chance of a war and a 1% chance of a terrible natural disaster. Go on down the list. Any individual one of those risks is a very small chance of it happening. But what are the odds that at least one of those things will happen in a given year? It's very high. So every single year, it seems like there is this one in a century event that's going to you know throw everything for a loop and make stock markets crash and recessions or whatnot. And so, and, and we see that all the time. Like it was COVID and we've had terrorist attacks and we have wars and we have recessions and financial crises. And it seems like you live in a world where you're like, man, every year there's a once in a century storm. And it's true. That is what's happening. But even if the odds of any one of those happening is very low, the odds that something will happen are very high. Yeah, yeah, that's that's such a good point. We, we've seen this in some of the commodity markets we look at. So copper is a nice example. Oil is quite similar, where every year you have these kind of fluke accidents, like, you know, some mine, there's a mudslide or there's a terrorist attack or something, you know, something crazy happens. And you think like, you know, you could never have predicted this. It's like the weirdest thing that happened. But then if you look at it on average, because there's so many mines across the world, you know, actually, it's more or less the same every year. Like with copper, for example, every year, you know, two, three, four, five percent of mines stop producing for whatever reason, like weird one in a hundred kind of events. But they happen all the time, like you say. So it, it just kind of keeps going. The odds of there being a year in which nothing bad happens, that's the lowest odds. Yeah. Like that would be the crazy fluke is yeah, that we yeah. go 365 days with no tragedies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we've been talking a bit about sort of, you know, it's hard to predict and, and make forecasts. But then when we talk to our clients and, you know, for all of us as investors, there's this trade-off. Like if you realize, oh, the future is so unpredictable, it's so uncertain, but yet at the same time, you need to still invest your money in the stock market. And, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, what about all these crazy things that are going to happen? Shouldn't I just keep my money in a savings account? Like the world is so uncertain and it's actually more uncertain than we even realize. Like how do you kind of square those two, two ideas? I've always thought of it as save your money like a pessimist and invest your money like an optimist. Save your money and have a level of cash and liquidity and avoid debt with the idea that the short term in front of us – uh, you should always be pessimistic about because it's a never ending minefield of surprises. And like we we're just talking about pandemics, recessions, bear markets, terrorist attacks, wars. And you need to be able to survive and endure all of those risks. And if you can, if you can endure all those risks, then the payoffs for long term investors can be extraordinary. So and that's why you need to invest like an optimist. And so I think it's just getting optimism and pessimism to coexist. And Admitting that the future in front of us is uncertain does not preclude the long term becoming very optimistic and very prosperous. I dedicated my second book, Same as Ever, to the reasonable optimist, which I defined as, as this. If you think that the future is going to be great and everything is going to be good, that's not optimism. That's complacency. 
And so reasonable optimism, in my view, is the idea that most of the future in front of us is a never-ending chain of surprises and setbacks. But if you can endure those, then the prizes for the long-term people who stick around are amazing. It's just like this big obstacle course that we need to get through that never ends. And so I've been investing for roughly 20 years. During that period, there has never been a moment in which there were not a dozen things that you could list off that were dangerous risks in front of us. The economy's growing too slow. The economy's growing too fast. There's a banking crisis. The president is doing this and that. The Federal Reserve is screwing up. Inflation's too high. At any given moment, you could list all these things that were risk. And during that period, the stock market's gone up fourfold. And I think that is actually a pretty common path of history where there is never a moment when things look good. There's never a moment when like the future is perfectly clear in front of us. But despite that, looking back at that minefield that you just ran through, you're like, oh, the market and the economy have actually done very well over this period. So I think those two things, uncertainty and prosperity, can coexist with each other. Yeah, I love when people use this phrase of, you know, we live in these uncertain times. And you think like, you know, when have times ever been certain? It always it looks certain right, when you never. look back, right? But at the time, yeah. the, you know, the people at the time didn't feel it was, it was very certain. One little point on this yeah. I've always thought was so fascinating. There is a professor in the United States who's tried to make an uncertainty index. So when is uncertainty higher or lower? And it's based off of what, what people are talking about in newspapers and like government policy and whatnot. And he maps it over time for like the last 30 years. And the two periods where, according to this index, uncertainty about the future was the lowest it had ever been was just before September 11th and just before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. That was when uncertainty by this measure was the lowest. And now that's so ridiculous because with hindsight, we know that uncertainty was the highest it had ever been. We just we right. were just complacent about it. Yeah. Like the most uncertain the world has ever been in the United States was September 10th, 2001, the day before 9-11. That was when the actual future that laid in front of us was the craziest and most uncertain it had ever been, but we just didn't know it. So it's not that uncertainty gets higher or lower. It's just that complacency gets higher or lower over time. Yeah, yeah, it's like this phrase, risk is the thing you're not thinking about. It's sort of the, the risks you're not, you're not worried right. about. But it is, I mean, the thing you point out with the, the sort of short-term periods, it is a tricky balance. I, I think you had this phrase, I'm sort of paraphrasing it a bit, a long-time period is a collection of short-time periods strung together, right? So it's, it's kind of theoretically yeah. easy to say, like, oh, I'm just investing for the long run. So I'm going to ride out these ups and downs. And I know in the long run, the stock market, you know, is going to deliver me a good return despite the volatility. But it's hard in the short-term periods, right? And in, in any kind of given short-term period where you're living through, you always have these doubts about, you know, what if it's different now or, you know, have things changed or it just it just feels different, right? You don't live kind of a, a theoretical life, you live a real life. And it's, it's hard for people to kind of balance those two things. So is it just you need to accept it or, you know, how do people actually deal with that? I've often used this analogy of like when people say I'm a long-term investor, that to me is the equivalent of standing at the bottom of Mount Everest and pointing to the top and saying, that's where I'm going. And it's like, great, like that's a good goal. But now comes the hard part. Now now you need to climb the mountain. That's what long-term investing is. So just like you said, the, the long-term is a collection of short terms. And all of those short terms you need to experience and endure to, to get through it, to make it to the long-term. And so even if you are a long-term investor, by and large, you're going to be watching the news and watching how uncertain the economy is, watching the economy, watching you or your neighbors or your, or your coworkers get laid off and the uncertainty and the fear that that causes. And you need to experience all of that. And so I think just saying I'm a long-term investor is kind of a cop-out for, for a lot of people. What they're saying is, I don't need to experience the emotional short-term when the reality is, oh, yes, you do. Whether you know it or not, yes, you do. And so having the ability, the personality, the mindset to experience and endure uncertainty rather than assuming that it does not apply to you because you're investing for the long-term is a really important part of long-term investing. I read the financial news every single day. I check my portfolio every single day. I'm very aware of what's happening in the markets every single day. The important thing is that I never use that information to change how I invest. Never do I read the Wall Street Journal and then say, oh man, I should go sell now. Never has it ever happened. So I'm always aware of what's going on. But the important thing is that it's not impacting your behavior in a detrimental way. And you've made this distinction between a penalty and a fee, which I think is relevant here in kind of thinking about sort of the ups and downs of investing. Maybe just talk us through that. So I, I remember the principle, but I'll probably butcher it if I try and repeat it. So let's, let's hear it from you. 
Yeah, so a, a fee is the cost of admission to get into someplace. You want to go to Disneyland, you pay the fee to get in. It's worth paying. A fine means you did something wrong. Like you got pulled over by the police officer, you're in trouble, here's your fine, shame on you, don't do that ever again. Very different things. I think a lot of investors view volatility as a fine. They, if their portfolio goes down 20%, they're like, oh, I'm in trouble. Either I or my financial advisor or portfolio manager made a mistake. This is a fine. We should not have done this. How can we make sure we never do it again? When the reality is, the huge majority of time, that volatility is a fee. You didn't do anything wrong. Nobody made a mistake. You're paying the cost of admission to get the reward on the other side. And so understanding that, like, yes, you can make a lot of money in the stock market over the long term. That doesn't come for free. Nothing good in life comes for free. There is always a cost of admission to pay for it. And in investing, that cost of admission is putting up with and dealing with a constant chain of uncertainty and volatility. I think just shifting your mindset from fine to fee is a really important part of doing well at investing over the long term. It makes it so that when you do experience a 20% decline in your portfolio, look, it's not necessarily fun. You don't enjoy it. But you're like, oh, this is just the bill coming to do. I'm paying the fees that I need to pay that are well worth paying to do well in the market over the long term. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense if you reframe it as you need to experience the volatility to be able to generate those higher returns. And I actually like that kind of flipping that around as well. Like one of the easiest ways, I think, to to spot scams or, you know, things that are complete Ponzi schemes is when someone promises you a high return with low volatility, like a guaranteed, you know, 20% per year or 5% a month or, you know, these kind of things with no ups and downs. Like you almost know because you're not paying that volatility fee and it's, it's too good to be true. Like it just can't exist, right? It almost has to be a scam. And it's true for almost anything in life. You want to be a doctor or a lawyer? Great. You're going to have to put up with, you're going to have to do a lot of schooling and it's a very stressful job. Like anything in life that has a great reward has a great cost associated with it. The other, I mean, two examples of this that I love, the two best basketball players of all time, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, and let's throw in Kobe Bryant in there, the three best basketball players. If you dig into their lives of what they did, those guys worked 24 hours a day for 25 years to become who they are. And not fun work, hard, grueling, grunting, sweaty work. They worked nonstop at what they did. So, so you see the product and the outcome, but what is often hidden is like the fee that they had to pay in order to get there. And it's usually like a perfect association between how successful somebody is with their investments or in their career, whatever it is, and the fee that they had to pay in, the sacrifices that they had to make in order to get there. So you've written one of the most powerful things investors can do is to increase their time horizon. And we've been speaking about time horizon now, and, and we obviously as a, as a firm and, you know, completely agree with that message. But what does it actually mean to say have a long time horizon? Rather than saying long time horizon, I think what's actually more important is flexible time horizon. Okay. Because even if you say, okay, I'm investing for the next 20 years, and let's say that means that, okay, I have to withdraw my money. I have to sell everything in January 2044, 20 years from now. What you are relying is that, is that on January 1st, 2044, that the market is going to be in a good spot for you to be able to sell. But maybe it won't. Maybe we'll be in the middle of a war or a depression or a bear market. And that's, like, that's actually a terrible time to sell. So more so than long time horizon, it's flexible. I'm going to retire at some point in the next 20 or 30 years, let's say. That's a flexible goal. So maybe January 2044 rolls around and you're like, hey, I've been investing for 20 years, but we're in the middle of this terrible period. It's not a good time to sell. I'm going to wait another five years. That's a great spot to be in. It's just having a flexible time horizon. The other thing is just understanding how compounding works, where to do well as an investor, it's not necessarily about how high the returns that you can earn are in any given year. Where the wealth really comes from is by good returns that you can sustain for the longest period of time. So if, if I give you two options, I said you can earn 12% a year for five years or 10% a year for 20 years. Like the latter is going to lead to so much more wealth in that situation. It's just what can you endure? And for most investors, the best returns that you might be able to earn in any given year are not the returns that you can sustain for the longest period of time. And this is why I, like, I invest the way that I do. I'm not the kind of person who says nobody can beat the market. Those people exist, but I'm not one of them. There are smart people who will do very well at investing. 
But to me, the biggest wealth comes from just not what are the best returns you can earn. It's like, what can you keep going for 50 years? And if you can be average for an above average period of time, that's an incredible spot to be in. You're going to generate amazing wealth over time. So that's why, that's another reason like time horizon is so important. It's just, that's how the math of compounding works. The variable where the big rewards come from are not returns, it's endurance. That's where wealth comes from. It's something we think about at Alan Gray as well. We sometimes see people who are in the wrong fund, for example. So if you're a really conservative person and you in you know, just the equity fund and it's too much volatility for you, you know, that might be a better return in theory in the long run. But if you can't stick with it, you know, what's the point? If you're going to sell out at the worst point, then it's not the right thing for you. And that's, I guess, where where financial advice is quite important. Are, are there other things like that that you can sort of, you know, that we could be doing or financial advisors could be doing to help their clients to sort of help them avoid those self-defeating behaviors or, you know, not take on kind of risks they shouldn't be taking on? I mean, it's, it's definitely true that your past behavior is the best indication of your future behavior. Okay. And so as you have more experience as an investor, I think it's really important to look back and say, how did I respond to the last couple of crises? When in the early days of COVID or the global financial crisis, what did I do? Did I panic sell? Did I buy more? Did I do nothing? Whatever you did, that's the best indication of how you're going to do the next time. Most investors do not learn from their mistakes because the reason that they made a mistake in the past was not because they didn't have the right information or they just didn't have the right knowledge. It's because that's just how they're wired behaviorally to respond to risk and uncertainty. And if you were the kind of investor who panicked in 2020 and sold everything, let's say, odds are you're going to do that during the next surprise. Because what made you sell, the behaviors, the emotions, the hormones that led you to sell last time are going to come rushing back during the next crisis. So study your past behavior and just embrace it. That's who you are. And it's fine if you were the kind of person, like maybe you didn't sell in 2020, but you lost a lot of sleep. And it just, it just wasn't worth it for you. You were so stressed out during that period. Maybe you should have an asset allocation that doesn't take so much risk. And that's fine. Knowing who you are and embracing who you are is probably the single most important part of successful investing. And if people look at my personal asset allocation, there would be a lot of financial advisors who would say, Morgan, you could take more risk. You, you don't need to hold this much cash. You can take more risk. And my answer is always like, look, I, I know by the spreadsheet, you're right. But for my personality, for whatever reason, for my wife and I, this works for us. We sleep really well at night. This, is, this, this works great for us. So I think just realizing how individualistic asset allocation should be and that there is no one right answer for everyone is, is so critical in investing. Yeah, the point on, on looking at your past behavior, I think that's an excellent one. It's probably a good indicator. Um, and, and maybe think of something else you've written about is, is how individually or as, you know, as groups, our, our personal experience in the market in, in our younger years or you know, at whatever time, influences so much about our expectation about the world and the markets and returns and these kind of things. We've written about, you know, people who grew up in the depression and we, knew, we know they were really conservative investors and they didn't take a lot of risk in general and they saved money and they didn't want to waste food and there were all these kind of behaviors that came out of the depression. So I wonder, you know, what we can expect going forward if we kind of speculate, you know, we've had a big bull market in the US. Do you think we could see the opposite kind of behavior? We've had really high returns. Like, are we going to see kind of the opposite now? If during the 1930s, if by the dumb luck of where you were born, if you were born in the United States versus South Africa, you had a totally different view of what the 1930s offered. The 1930s in the United States was absolutely abysmal. I mean, 25% unemployment, the stock market fell 90%. It was just a complete wipeout. And, but other parts of the world like, did relatively better. And what that left you with was so different based off, and these are people who have the same information, the same education. They're just as smart as one another, but they have a totally different view. And I think that's actually a perfect segue into what we take away from today because COVID over the last four years was probably the most bifurcated global recession that we've ever had, where in the United States, at least half of people in 2020, it was the worst period economically that they've ever experienced. It was worse than the Great Depression. If you owned a restaurant or a laundromat in 2020 and everything shut down, it was your, your business went to zero. And so many of those people were wiped out. Their businesses closed. 
If you were a tech worker in 2020, if you worked at Google or Amazon or something, it was the best time you've ever experienced. You made more money. You had more job security than you've ever had. The stock market went straight up. Your bonus probably doubled that year. It was an absolute bonanza. And so the experience that people have from COVID is so different. And it was really not like that in the Great Depression within one country. In the United States in the 1930s, it didn't matter if you were a ditch digger or a real estate tycoon, everybody lost money. It was bad for everybody. Whereas COVID, it was like such a different experience. So I think we now live in a world where half the country does not understand the economic views of the other half because their experiences have been so different over the last four years. I think you see that in different like polls for politics and whatnot, where a lot of people are like, oh man, things are great. Things are perfect. Like I've never been happier. And another half of the country is like, it's never been worse. And that divergence, I think, has never existed to the degree that it does today. Yeah. I imagine that that is a global phenomenon as well. That's a very interesting dis- distinction. The point you made on, on South Africa versus America is, is, is interesting as well, because in America, you've had in the last decade this big bull market in stocks. So it's been, it's been a good idea to be invested in the market. And you know, bonds haven't been great. No one's really been too excited about bonds where in South Africa, it's almost been the opposite in a way in that we've had quite a mediocre stock market. So, you know, financial advisors are having to work quite hard on their clients to tell them, you know, you should be investing in the market. It's the right decision for the long run. I know it's been tough in the short term, but actually we've had quite high interest rates. So, you know, people are quite comfortable putting their money in a savings account or, you know, fixed income type investment. Actually describing exactly what you're saying, sort of the recent experience has colored how people see these kind of different asset classes and think about investing more broadly. It's such a great example. Thanks for sharing that. And I always love this idea of like, do you know something that I don't or vice versa? Do you know something about high interest rates that I don't? Or do I know something about equity returns that you don't? Because we've experienced those opposite things over the last five or 10 years. And the answer is neither nor. Like, I think we just have to accept that I and you are products of the experiences that we've had. And my view of the world is shaped by the dumb luck of where and when I was born, as was yours, as was everybody else's. And this is what I love about global travel is meeting people who are the same age, the same education, just as smart as you, and they have a totally different worldview. And it's so amazing to, and humbling to understand and get a a view of like how biased you are to your own experience. It's always staggering. So I have this worldview about how investing works, long-term investing. Long-term investing can be a very US-centric thing because it's worked in the United States. But if you talk to someone whose grandparents were investing in the German stock market in the 1930s, it went to zero. They, They got wiped out in World War II. So everyone is a product of their own of their own experience. We're all just mirrors of what we've experienced in the past. And nobody is exempt from that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it made me think of something else you've written about, about sort of how powerful narratives are. And once they get going and there's sort of a crowd element to it, it it's, it's very strong. But then once it breaks, you know, everything can change. And, and we saw that in America and all around the world in, in 2007 with the housing crisis, when things changed in a big way. And, you know, lots of other examples we can think about and I always wonder about that is it's the point you've also made is there are things we want to believe, right? We we believe a story and sometimes it's in our interest to believe that story. Like we own a stock, for example, and we believe the narrative around the company and that's going to do well. And we don't want to change our mind because it's we sort of, sort of our interests are aligned in a certain way and it's very hard to change your views. Do you have any thoughts on that or how we get stuck in those kind of traps? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's pretty common for a few things. One, the investment decisions that you made, you view them as a reflection of your own intelligence. So to change your mind and say, look, I had this belief in the past, but now I realize it was wrong. For a lot of people, they can view that as an attack against their intelligence. To admit to themselves that they were wrong in the past and need to change their mind, that's a tough thing to do. The decision becomes an integral part of their identity. I kind of have this for myself. One of the first stocks I ever bought was Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company. And I still own it. I've owned it for 20 years. I still own it. Now, Berkshire Hathaway is is a great company. It's not not an exceptional company anymore, mostly just because it's so big. It's just almost impossible to outperform. And it is not outperformed. And a lot of people will ask like, hey, do you think Berkshire Hathaway will outperform in the future? And my answer is no, probably not. And they say, "Well, well, why do you own it? 
And it's like, ah, it's just, it has a sentimental value to me. Like I, I became interested in investing because of Warren Buffett. It was one of the first stocks I owned. I don't think I will ever sell it. It's almost just like a little trophy in my portfolio, even if I don't think it's going to outperform. And so everyone, like people should not pretend that they're not emotional about their money. Everybody is emotional about money in their own unique way. And I think it's very dangerous for people to say, I have no emotions about the, about the investments that I own. That nine times out of 10, you're fooling yourself about that. Most of your decisions are tied to, you know, you know, some feeling of like, I was really smart when I made this decision. So it's almost impossible to let go of that. We had spoken about this earlier. You do need to set up some guardrails about the decisions that you make. One is politics. Of like, once you get your political views, like integral into your investing decisions, that almost never goes well. I have political views, keep them 10 miles away from your, from your portfolio. That's really important. But I think we like, nobody should pretend that they're unemotional about their money. It's a very personal thing, particularly if you are investing for your retirement or your kid's education. Those are emotional things. Like we should not pretend that I'm unemotional about my children's ability to go to college. Of course I'm emotional about it. It's an important thing to my life. So like being aware of your emotions is much more important than assuming that you don't have any. You brought up um, Warren Buffett, and I love the anecdote you had in in the new book on investing in things that don't change. You maybe want to share that uh, briefly. Many years ago, I had lunch with this guy who is very close friends with Warren Buffett, and they were driving around Omaha in Buffett's car in 2009. And this was the wreckage of the global financial crisis. So Omaha, Nebraska, where Buffett lives, was in shambles. And businesses were boarded up and going out of business. And this guy said, Warren, how are we ever going to recover from this? And Warren said, do you know what the best-selling candy bar was in 1962? And the guy said, no. And Warren said, Snickers. And then Warren said, do you know what the best-selling candy bar is today? And the guy said, no. And Warren said, Snickers. And that was the end of the conversation. His, his obvious takeaway being like, don't ask what's going to change in the future because we have no idea. Find something that is never going to change. Find something that is stable and bet on that. So like bet on the, the, the version of Snickers, like the equivalent of a Snickers in the world, something that's never, that's never changed. That was a big foundation for my book, Same as Ever. It's like, don't, don't, try, don't even try to find something that's going to change. Find what's never going to change and put all of your emphasis into that. Yeah, that's, that's such a great story. I've, I don't know if it's maybe a stretch to kind of say that's like a value investing style. Like, you know, if you believe this thing, okay, there are some things in the world that are hard to predict. Some things are definitely going to stay the same because it's human nature. And those are kind of not always, but often the value investing type things. Do you think that's a bit of a stretch, like us being more value type managers trying to make that uh, claim or, or not? I think whether it's value investing or venture capital, there is an element of change and an element of timeless in everything. So uh, Jeff Bezos made this point about Amazon, where even when he started Amazon, like there was a lot that was changing in the world. The internet was changing, technology was changing. But he said, you can never imagine a world which customers don't want low prices, fast shipping, and big selection. They will always want those things. That's something that has never changed and will never change. And that is the foundation of Amazon. Even when Amazon was a crazy little seed startup, those timeless things were core to the business. I think that's true for every successful startup that a venture capitalist might be looking at. There is something timeless that that you're actually making a bet on. And even when you're a a value investor, you know, you want to own a business that is going to have some change over time. So even if you're looking at a candy bar company like Snickers, well, how they produce Snickers, how they market Snickers, whatnot, has changed. There has been technological evolution over time. So it's not that nothing changes. I think what you want is a company that has like doesn't need to reinvent itself every year. And this is why historically consumer staples have outperformed technology over a very long period of time right. because every technology company more or less needs to reinvent themselves every year, every couple of years with new products, like new, new technologies. Whereas if you're selling toilet paper and toothpaste, you're, 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 you're selling the same product. You don't have to spend all that money reinventing yourself, which could be a very costly endeavor. And at some point you're going to drop the ball. And one of your iterations of reinvention is, 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 is going to go astray. So I think th- there's always an element of both. And there are a lot of value investors who have gotten into trouble by thinking like, oh, let's bet on what never changes. So like what, what never changes, like, like typewriter companies, like, you know, like, like <laughs> things that like technologies that like were very important in the past that like don't really exist anymore. 
So I think you need to accept that the world changes, the world evolves. And if you're investing in companies that were relevant in one period of time, but have lost relevancy, that's the biggest value investing trap that exists. Ben Graham, the, the father of value investing, has this quote on, on sort of talking around margin of safety, that the, the purpose of a margin of safety is to render a forecast unnecessary, which I really like. I think you've probably quoted it as well. And something on, on that theme that I really like in your writing and sort of resonates with our philosophy is we've been talking about all these things that are hard to predict. And, you know, often the way we come at an investment is saying there are lots of things that could happen here. We're not quite sure how things are going to play out, but you need to get the odds sort of roughly in your favor. And if you have a big enough margin of safety, so if you're not paying a sort of a high evaluation, then things will probably work out quite well. Does that kind of square with how you think about this all these topics you've spoken about in 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 same as ever i think it's 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 definitely true but like everything it's not black and white and there are plenty of companies that you think you have a big margin of safety but if a company is truly dying there's no margin of safety that is probably going to save you and particularly like back in the buffett era of the 1950s and the 1960s. There was the Ben Graham idea of the cigar butt, where a company that like may have literally been going out of business, but it was trading so cheaply that the liquidation value was such that you're still going to do okay. By and large, those don't exist anymore. The market is more efficient today than it was in the 1960s, at least in the United States. And, and because of that, I think there are a lot of people who are like, oh, I have a big margin of safety, but yeah, but it's not big enough. Or the other thing is that margin of safety is a, sub- is a subjective measure. So maybe by your calculation on your Excel spreadsheet, it looks like you have a big margin of safety. But what really matters is like what the rest of the market thinks. Are, like, is the rest of the market going to eventually come around to your view? Maybe yes, maybe no. So it's a great philosophy. It's the right philosophy. It's, it's an essential philosophy. But like a lot of philosophies, it's subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. And that's where a lot of value investors can eventually go astray. I definitely agree with that. There's there's interesting research on on the US, but I'm sure it's true elsewhere as well, on how the average lifespan of companies has gotten uh, shorter. And I guess kind of echoing what you're saying, like it's things have become more competitive. Like you can't, if technology changes, you don't adapt, you probably go out of business. So that is something to keep in mind. It's also much more winner take all today than it used to be. It right. used to be every city, you know, had its own tire company. And, and the tire company in Philadelphia was not competing with the tire company in Los Angeles. But because of globalization and just like things got more integrated, it's more winner take all. There's going to be one tire company that serves the entire country that takes everything. And all the other companies are either going to get swallowed up by that company or go out of business. And that's true on the global stage as well. So it's just, it's just, it's more winner take all, which creates more risk for most of the businesses and extraordinary rewards for the few that are, are actually going to win. I'm going to be a little bit left field. Do you think investing is a science? Like there's all this data and there's obviously a lot of quantitative stuff going on in the industry and people crunching numbers. I think maybe 30, 40 years ago, a lot of people would have said, okay, it's half art, half science. It feels like it's swung more towards science. I don't know what your take is on that. I think it's swung more towards art, to tell you the truth. Because most of the scientific opportunity that you can quantify has been squeezed out. The the opportunity has been squeezed out by competition and by computers who are like scraping all the information. So Buffett talks about back in the 1950s, like if he wanted to research a company, he had to go to the library and make an appointment and like make a request for that company's financials, wait for the financials to be delivered two weeks later, and then he could research a company. Whereas today, that entire thing happens in four milliseconds by 10,000 computers all over the world that are scraping the information automatically. So the analytical opportunity is, is much less today than it used to be. Buffett often tells stories about in the 1950s, he would buy blue chip quality companies for like three times earnings. With like opportunities that like by and large just don't exist anymore. But like even if the analytical opportunity has been reduced relative to what it used to be, the behavioral opportunity I think is greater today. There are just there are more investors today and they're more emotional because they have more information. So the odds that the market is gonna like irrationally swing 
in one direction or another to like a great degree is, is, is more today. And I think that behavioral opportunity will always exist. You're never going to eradicate it like you could the analytical opportunity. It's never going to be squeezed out like it used to be. People are always going to be emotional. And their emotions might even increase over time if they have you know, more information. All of a sudden, they're scrolling Twitter and it's giving them a bunch of reasons to sell that, that they didn't used to have. And so it, it, it's always been a mix of art and science. But I think, A, most of the scientific properties of investing were discovered in, in, in the last hundred years. Like uh, this, this one statistic I always thought is so incredible. The idea of discounted cash flow in investing didn't really exist, wasn't really codified until the 1930s when a guy named John Burr Williams wrote a book called The Theory of Investing Value at Harvard. 1930s, not that long ago. That was like, like our, our grandparents were alive. This is, this is a pretty, like something that is so fundamental to investing. Didn't really exist until less than a hundred years ago. And because of that, most of the 20th century, we were constantly making discoveries whether it was the discounted cash flow model or the Black-Scholes formula, constantly making dis foundational discoveries where one year we didn't understand something and the next year we did. But most of that has been, I think, extinguished. Like now we understand mathematically how investing works. And so it's less opportunity on that side, but maybe more opportunity on the behavioral side of exploiting other people's behaviors and emotions. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So, I mean, if we, if we accept this kind of, premise that the quantitative side, the opportunities have been squeezed and it's become so much harder. And then earlier we were talking about how hard it is to make predictions and forecasts, like that's almost a waste of time as well. That kind of um, limits one's, one's abilities a little bit. What advice would you then have for, for someone who's sort of forced to engage in, in these realms? So if you're a financial advisor and, you know, you can say, oh, forecasts are hard and it's, you know, a lot of it's a waste of time, but you, in a way, you're a little bit forced to make those decisions on behalf of your clients and you're still forced to do some quantitative analysis. You can't just say, oh, I'm only going to look at psychology. You know, what advice would you have to someone in, in that position then? I think it's, it's two things. There's this great quote from Nassim Taleb where he says, invest in preparedness, not in prediction. So you can quantitatively invest in preparedness. Like what is your asset allocation versus stocks and cash and bonds? You can take an analytical approach to that. Uh, but you're not investing in prediction. You're not using an analytical forecasting model to predict when the stock market is going to peak or when the next recession is going to happen. So like there, there's a time and a place for data. The other thing is I, I would say is become a great student in yourself rather than a student necessarily just in market history or economic history. You got to understand your own behaviors, your own flaws and whatnot. And so like I, I spent a lot of time with data. I, I like to know how fast the economy is growing. I'm really into demographics, which is extremely quantitative. I like knowing the earnings yield on my portfolio, which is going to give me a rough estimation of what my future returns are going to be. But I think all of that is swamped out by behavior in, in the sense of if you do all the quantitative research on your portfolio and it's good, it's accurate quantitative research, but you also don't have control over your own behavior, then none of the quantitative research matters. Like behavior has to come first. And once you have mastered your own behavior, if you can get to that point, that's when the quantitative stuff really starts to make a difference. So Buffett, I think, is one of the masters of behavioral investing, of long-term approach, doesn't panic, understands Mr. Market. He's also extremely quantitative. And the people who know him will talk about how good he is with numbers. And he can just rattle off figures off the top of his head, extremely analytical, extremely quantitative. But I think the core of his success, the most important part of his success is still the behavioral element. Yeah, I think, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, do you think people are sort of hardwired in that way? You know, can we actually change the way we think about these things? Uh, you know, some of these things we've been talking about, these attitudes, or is it sort of a little bit hopeless and we just have to realize that we're bad at some of these things and sort of accept it? There's a quote from Charlie Munger where he says, when you are teaching financial education to young people, they either understand it instantly or never at all. Yeah. And I think what he's saying is that say, some people are wired for this and some people are not. Buffett has always talked about people who have the money mind and some people are born with the money mind. They understand compounding. They understand net present value. They understand moats. And they just get it intuitively. Maybe they, they, had, they read about it once when they were 15 years old, and they, they just got it. it just, they never had to think about it ever again. It was natural. And I think there are, there's also some people in society who, no matter what you tell them, no matter what information you show them, 
they're always going to be making bad decisions. They're, they're compulsive gamblers. It's, it's, it's the, it's the opposite of the money mind. They have the gambling mind, let's say. And so I, I think there is a behavioral element to it, but I also think the majority of the population can be persuaded if they have the right information and maybe their natural intuition is to day trade. Their natural intuition is to panic. But if you give them a little bit of historical context, they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. And I think this is true for, you know, take food. Like most people's natural indication is to eat candy and ice cream because it tastes good. But if you give them the right information and say, hey, actually that's going to reduce your life expectancy. You're going to have a much better life if you eat these healthier foods. Most people will be like, oh, thanks for telling me. Good to know. I'll move my behavior in that direction. I still like the candy, but I'm going to make sure to eat plenty of fruits and vegetables too. I think there's a financial equivalent of that for a lot of people. So yes, we are all persuaded by the DNA that we have. I am, you are. Some people are born understanding these things more than others. My, you know, I, I have found, as you have, a career in finance. I love finance. And my mom talks about when I was two years old, I used to sit there and count pennies. And I just loved it. I, I, I did not like counting uh, beans. I didn't like counting candy. I loved counting money when I was two years old. So I often think, like, is my fascination with this industry, how much of that is just DNA? I was, just, I was literally doing this at two years old. There, there's, always, there's always that element for, for most people, but I think most people want and need and, and can be persuaded by good advice. Depressingly, you know, most of us are just slow learners. So you, you mentioned the example of the candy and ice cream. And I guess for a lot of us, you know, if someone can tell you rationally, this is the right thing to do, but it just, it takes a while, right? It takes some willpower, it takes some convincing and same with the investing things. There, there's some really bad behaviors that sort of cause outsized outcomes, so in investing, for example, there, there are a few things that one can do. So obviously with your personal finances, so gambling might be one or compulsive gambling rather, or taking on too much debt. Those are things that can really derail you or investing like really kind of panic trading or selling at the worst times. And if you can just at least eliminate or reduce those really bad behaviors, that can make sort of an outsized yeah. impact on, on your outcomes, I guess. The other thing that's really important here is that it's not necessarily – a difference in skill and behavior, but people have very different goals as well. So, you know, my goal financially is to invest and compound for the next 50 years. And at that point, a lot of that money that I have is going to go to my kids. It'll go to charity. It'll go back to society. And I love that. I think that's great. That's my goal. Like I, it's, it's so fun for me to think about that. There are so many people though, who would disagree with that. And they say, I don't want to leave money to my kids or charity. I want to live for myself. I want to go on vacation this year. I want to buy a new boat this year. And I think that's great. It's, it's different from what I want, but never would I say that my idea is better or your idea is worse. We have very different goals. And by the way, how you invest your money if you want to buy a boat this year is going to be very different from how I invest my money if I want to leave it to charity 50 years from now. So people aren't necessarily right or wrong in what they do. It's just people have very different goals. Yeah, I think that's actually a good note to to close on. You know, hopefully the optimistic interpretation is we're not completely hardwired. There's some hope for us. We can hopefully improve. We can learn from history. We can learn from psychology. Yeah, so great. Morgan, it's, it's been so great having you back again. Thanks so much. This has been so much fun. Thanks so much. Thank you to Morgan Housel for joining us and sharing some timeless lessons on thinking about risk and seizing opportunities. When it comes to long-term investing and life, uncertainty is ever-present. There is great value in focusing on the variables that stay the same and are in our control to some degree to navigate through the events we cannot predict and may not be prepared for. Morgan's thoughts on dealing with the inherent unpredictability of markets and the world echo the investing principles we strive to apply at Ellen Gray, such as separating the signal from the noise, long-term thinking, and adjusting our views based on new information. If you would like to get in touch, please send an email to info at You can also subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. Lastly, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the terms and conditions and find out more about our investment offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Tim Acker. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by Volume.